Welcome to Wealth Science. I'm your host, Jesse Fuchsia, Army Ranger, real estate investor, and income enthusiast. On this show, we uncover the keys to attaining financial freedom. There are so many people listening right now who are stuck in that day-to-day, nine-to-five rat race. Luckily, it's only temporary. Each week, we bring on guests that help us discover the steps to build financial freedom, passive income, and generational wealth, so we can live the life we were born to live. Money is freedom. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Wealth Science. I'm your host, Jesse Fuchsia, and today's guest is Brian Briscoe. Brian is the co-founder of the apartment investing firm Four Oaks Capital. He's currently actively or passively investing in more than 600 doors of commercial multifamily apartments. Some of his roles at Four Oaks includes marketing, raising capital, due diligence, and broker relations. Brian is also a husband, father, and 20-year veteran of the U.S. Marines. Wealth Science, I bring you the host of the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast and founding father of the Tribe of Titans. Brian Briscoe, welcome to the show, brother. What's going on? Hey, thanks, Jesse. I appreciate you having me on the show and thanks for taking the time for this. Yeah, absolutely. And I know I know we are recording this a few days before Christmas. Like I said in the intro, I mean, you're a father, uh, you're a husband. Hopefully all the Christmas shopping's done, but we will uh, add value today and we will help someone out there that's listening. So for the people who don't know you, Brian, I mean, I'd love for you to take a couple of minutes and just introduce yourself. Yeah, I mean, as far as the Christmas shopping, you'll have to ask my wife if it's all done. Um, you know, I, I did buy a couple of small things for people, but uh, but that's about it. Um, yeah, so I mean, uh, just I, I guess a couple of little points on on you know what you said in the bio. Yeah, twenty years in the Marine Corps. Um, you know, something that I, I I really like to talk about for some reason is is my why as far as what, what, what my motivations for doing things. You know, so. You know, why did I get in the Marine Corps? I, I was one of those guys, you know, during September, when September 11th happened, you know, sitting with a college degree, you know, I was in grad school at the time and it was just one of those moments, you know, one of those wake up aha moments, you know, and it was just like, you know, I've had a lot of good things happen to me. This country's been absolutely amazing to me and I needed to do something right. And so um, for me, that was kind of the call to arms. And so I went to um, the officer recruiter in the area and uh, ended up shipping out to the very next class of officer candidate school. So, you know, that that was kind of the nexus behind, you know, military. Um, and incidentally, I remember telling a buddy in high school that I got accepted to Naval Academy that he was wasting his time with a military career. So I, I kind of did a, a 180 on, you know, my, my previous you know, perspective and, you know, join the military. What, what I didn't realize at the time is that I'd end up enjoying it. So, um, you know, 20 years later, you know, I, I, I retired and that was um, only a couple months ago, but uh, um, I, I think the next, you know, big event in my life was, um, you know, I hate to say it, it was my 40th birthday and it wasn't because I was realizing I was getting old. It's just because I had made so many financial goals that were tied to my 40th birthday. You know, I was, you know, my, my late twenties when I read, you know, rich dad, poor dad, cash flow quarter, and a couple of other, uh, you know, financial books like that. And I remember making a lot of goals and every single one of them were tied to my 40th birthday. And I remember, you know, the realization when I turned 40 of, oh my goodness, you know, 
I didn't achieve any single, I, I had passive income goals. I had net worth goals. I had all kinds of different goals for myself. And I realized I didn't achieve any of them. And so for me, that was, that was another big wake up moment. It was like, you know, I, I, I did okay. You know, I, I had, you know, a handful of single family apart, or not, not apartments, single family homes that I was renting out. Um, you know, I had some money invested in, you know, both, you know, my, you know, retirement plan, the military thrift savings plan. I had some money in a, you know, personal investment account, but, you know, nowhere near the goals that I had set for myself. And so that was my next big wake up moment. And I, I realized I need to kick, start kicking things in high gear. You know, I was 40, wasn't getting any younger. Um, and so in the, in the last five years, I've, I've made it, uh, you know, my goal to, to really improve the the financial situation that uh, that we're in, yeah, and I was making a good salary, and I, I think I think what really detracted me from the goals was I was comfortable. Um, a lot of effort into educating myself on you know different financial options, you know, primarily through real estate, but you know my my financial education. Um, and then in the last, you know, three years, started focusing on multifamily acquisitions. And, you know, we, we now have, you know, through you know, the company that I co-founded, you know, 629 units. And uh, um, I'm actually closing tomorrow on another 26 units that we are, uh, we, we came in as loan guarantors. We're helping another group um, qualify for a loan and be able to um, purchase a property that they had under contract. So, um, yeah, and where, where I am now, you know, retired, been retired. I've, got, I've gotten one single retirement paycheck so far, you know, and then, like I said, the 600 and, and change multifamily units. Um, and, you know, from here, we're just looking at uh, doing more and more and more. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an incredible start and in how it started. And when I look at 9-11, and I'm from upstate New York, and it's a huge part of my why, too. Yeah. And even though our careers are offset, you hit 20 years and retired this year. I'm approaching five years, you know, you serve the entire GWAT and I'm here, you know, finishing at the end. But, you know, I, I really view that event as kind of like our generation's Pearl Harbor. You, yeah. you hit the nail on the head. The call to arms is what it was. So um, when I deployed in 2020, I carried a piece of steel rebar from the World Trade Center on me. Nice. And just being from upstate New York, again, I'm not from the city, but I, I feel like New York is, is New York. And maybe that's just me. But people think in New York, they think of the high taxes and the terrible governors and, and all that stuff yeah. is is right. But uh, there's there's great people there as well. Um, yeah, but, you uh, know, it, it's it's the financial capital, you know, and I yeah. mean, the terrorists also hit. And for some reason, this is this is something my daughter brought up to me. Um, about a year ago, my, my last duty station was the Pentagon. And I took all my kids through the Pentagon. Um, this is actually May of this year, but I took all my kids through the Pentagon on a tour. You know, it was a Brian Briscoe guided tour because the, the Pentagon official tours had closed down due to, you know, the COVID thing. But, uh, you know, we went down the Memorial Hall hallway for 9-11 and my oldest daughter, who was two when the World Trade Center went down, um, made a point. She's like, Dad, we always hear about the Twin Towers. We always hear about New York City. Why doesn't anybody ever talk about the Pentagon getting hit? You know, and it was just one of those things where, you know, I, I really thought about it. I think the answer for, for most people is, you know, people my age, we watched the Twin Towers go down. I mean, the first plane hit and there wasn't a lot of footage of that, but, 
you know, every news camera in the world was trained on those or every New York, every news camera in New York City was, you know, pointing towards those towers when they collapsed. And I think the um, that image is what's burned into everybody's mind as far as 9-11. But uh, um, anyway, it was it was in, in a way special, you know, being able to walk into the Pentagon, you know, three straight years on September 11th and really think about what that moment meant for the people inside the building. So, um but yeah, that de- definitely something that uh, that changed my trajectory. Yeah, that, that's incredible. I, I agree with you. That's a powerful statement to be in the actual building on the anniversary of, of where people lost their lives at. I, I agree. And I, I assume there's some type of memorial. Is there a memorial there inside the Pentagon? There's one inside and there's one outside. There's a memorial chapel, which is essentially right where the plane hit. And then outside, um, there's also a memorial area that, uh, you know, the chapel has the name of everybody who lost their lives. And outside there, there's trees and benches and a lot of other things that, you know, all all have some sort of symbolic meaning towards the attacks. That's incredible. And I, I've never hit that one. And I, I highly recommend everybody attend that one. I've done the one in Shanksville. And obviously, I've done the one in Manhattan as well, which are, are super powerful. But yeah. when looking back on that time period, you know, Brian, and you had that aha moment of, of starting to kick the gears, mm-hmm. you know, we talk so much on here, and I tell people, you know, that the most important real estate in the world isn't the 400 unit building in, in Delray Beach, Florida, it's the six inches between your ears. I mean, what's going on inside the mind of Brian Briscoe when you're having that aha moment, you're thinking about the generational wealth of setting conditions for, you know, your family, your children to come? Well, you know, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, that that 40th birthday happened on a deployment. And, um, you know, my, my experience with deployments, you're either so busy, you don't have time to, you know, even go to the bathroom or you're so bored that you, you know, have, you know, you're looking for things to do. And this, this happened to be one of the deployments where I was more on the board side. So I started reading and I probably read a hundred different books um, on different real estate investment strategies, different stock market strategies, you know, different ways to, um, to build your wealth. And, and reading through all those books, you know, I, I was doing so with a kind of a, my, my future in mind, like which, which one of these methods do I think I can do? Which one do I want to do? Which ones do I particularly like? Um, and I, I had gravitated towards real estate before, you know, I, like I said, I had several single family homes and, you know, several years prior when I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I focused on kind of like the single family rentals for a little bit, um, ended up losing track after buying a handful. But uh, so I, I really started looking at, you know, what, how did I envision myself you know, in, in the real estate market. And um, I kept on coming back to multifamily. I mean, there, there, I looked at the Burr strategy for single family and small multifamily. You know, I looked at the, you know, subject to lease options as well. And, you know, a lot of different strategies and ended up, like I said, always gravitating towards the multifamily syndication, you know, and essentially what that is, is, you know, as, as a syndicator, we look for properties um, that make good sense for an investment. And then we extend that opportunity out to people in our network for them to invest with us. So we pool capital together, you know, some, our own money in, is in every deal and then capital from you know people in our networks to be able to, you know, close on the property um, in most cases, renovate it and, you know, operate it. And then we distribute the profits, you know, um, according to, you know, a set structure to our investors. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we have so many people who come on and I've had 
people who preach mobile home parks, preach self-storage, uh, preach single family home birth structure like you're talking about. I guess what specifically about multifamily apartments do you think has, you know, such a great advantage and, you know, achieves such great returns for your investors? So one of the biggest advantages is, is just the, the, the resilience, you know, I mean, when, when you look at the previous recessions that we've had, you know, multifamily is the one that gets hit the least hard and recovers the fastest, you know, and that's, that's looking at, you know, the generic, you know, classes or the generic uh, classes of commercial real estate, you know, the office versus the industrial versus the retail versus the hospitality and multifamily, you know, so multifamily tends to do the best in, in most environments. Um, and it's, it's also something that's, you know, supply and demand is, is, always, well, the demand is always going to be there. You know, shelter is a basic human need. Um, I mean, we saw with COVID that, you know, retail plummeted. We saw the office space plummeted, you know, and, and demographics are going to change. The way we work is going to change. It has in the last hundred years, and it's changing even faster and faster, you know, every year. The way we shop has changed significantly as well. So, you know, what, what's coming up in the future, I don't know, but it's, it's going to change the face of how we do things in general, but what's not going to change is we're going to have to live somewhere, you know? And so that's, that's basically the, the, the biggest selling point to multifamilies is people have to live somewhere. And when you look at the demographics, you know, the, the younger generation, um, you know, when I grew up, you know, I was taught, you know, the American dream, you know, white picket fence, you know, single family home in a you know, good suburban, suburban neighborhood. Um, that's, that's no longer what, you know, the, the, the millennial generation and, and the following generations are looking for, you know, they're looking for convenience. They're looking for, you know, I want to live in a place that I don't have to worry about. I don't have to fix, you know, and I want the convenience. I, I don't want to be tied to one location. And so we're, we're seeing, you know, more and more of the, you know, 20 to 30, you know, 20 to 35 crowd that are choosing to rent instead of buy, as opposed to my, my generation, I'm, I'm tail end of Gen X, but uh, you know, my, my Gen X generation, you know, we, we were looking to purchase, we were looking to come in and, you know, buy a house, gain equity and, and, and whatnot. So big, big demographic change. And I think the fundamental, you know, answer to that question is people have to live somewhere. And the corollary is more and more people are choosing to live in apartments. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, I think one of the, what you said, one of the basic human needs is, is four walls and a roof. People will always need shelter, always need a place to live. And then also on the recession resistance piece, I think, you know, during recessions, you know, home buyers or homeowners downsizing what they'll need to become most likely renters and maybe class A, B, C apartments or whatever. It just, it proves the recession resistance of the asset. Uh, there's always going to be a demand. So I, I love that aspect of it. And um, we were mentioning, uh, we were talking this before, and I love how you brought up the concept of syndication. There's a lot of passive investors that listen to this show, Brian, you know, they um, listen to my content. They engage with me on LinkedIn and they're like, Jesse, you know, I am in that bucket. You know, I, I love my W2 job, but I don't have the time to own and operate real estate, but there's one problem. I don't know what a good GP looks like. I mean, if, you know, Brian, can you just break it down from A to Z for the person listening right now? What's the proper vetting process of a sponsor or a syndication GP? I mean, what questions should they be asking? What's an example of a good sponsor? What's an example of a bad sponsor? 
You know, um, I think a couple of things you need to look at is, do you like the person, you know, and that, that's, that's first and foremost, you know, is it somebody that you can pick up the phone and call and talk to, right? Um, you need to have a relationship with the person in most cases. I mean, um, that's, I, I think is first and foremost. And incidentally, I've, I've passively invested in several deals that aren't our own as well, but, uh, you know, I, I look for team first, you know. Um, is, is it a person that's committed to the business? You know, um, something that, you know, my, my personal philosophy, you know, serial entrepreneurs that when, when you look at their history, they're doing something different every year. You know, I look at that as a big risk, you know, because yeah, they may be in the multifamily right now, but if they have ADD with their careers and their entrepreneurship, you know, I, I think that's, that's, that's a red flag warning sign, but you know, besides being able to like, know, and trust somebody, um, you got to look at their track record, you know, and, and see what they have done, you know, and, and not just, you know, what they've closed on, but ask them questions about operations. You know, if, if they've come full cycle on some deals, you know, ask them to show you the numbers. And if, if they own apartments, you know, ask them how it's doing, you know, and ask some tough questions like, you know, what's, what, what are some things that have gone wrong, you know, and, and if, if they're giving you a rainbow and unicorn story, you know, there, there's something that goes wrong with every property, right? So, you know, be, beware of rainbow and unicorns. Hey, everything's going amazing. You know, it's, this is so, such an easy job. The truth is it's not, you know, I mean, um, you know, we, we've had issues. We've had a couple of fires. We've had insurance claims. We've had, um, we had one property where we had a shooting, you know, we had, uh, um, one property where we ended up, uh, you know, having, you know, the police come in and raid a drug den and, and things like that. But, uh, you know, um, depending on, you know, what, what asset class you're buying, if you're in the C-class stuff, you're going to get a lot of that type of stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I would definitely say you have to know, like, and trust them and start looking at their track record and looking at their communications. Um, I think one of the biggest frustrations I've heard from, other passive investors is when the sponsors just aren't communicating. You know, for example, we put out uh, a monthly report on all of our properties, you know, so every month, all of our investors are getting, you know, an email saying, you know, here's what's going on with this property. Here's how much rent we collected. Here are our operating expenses. Here are our plans for the future. Here's how many units we renovated. So that, that's something else you want to see, you know, look at their, their sample communications if they're, if they're willing to give it and and see what's what's in store you know and, and make sure that uh um and i guess that the final thing is just to make sure that their investment philosophy aligns with yours um for example our investment philosophy we're, we're doing a lot of value adds and our philosophy is we want to maximize the returns to investors not everybody wants to maximize returns you know some people want long-term cash flow some people you know, um, have, have different ideas of what their investment looks like. You know, we're not paying a lot of cash flow while we own the property, but we're going in, we're renovating, we're stabilizing, and then we're selling because we've forced a lot of appreciation. We've created a lot of value through our renovations. And, and so for us, you know, most of the returns are coming, you know, through that forced appreciation when we sell. So the last thing I would just say is make sure that the sponsor's you know, investment, you know, thesis aligns with yours, you know, because if, if you want to, you know, have an asset that's cash flowing for 15 years, um, we're not the right sponsor for you, you know, so, so make sure you're finding a sponsor that has the same mentality as you do as far as um, investing.
Yeah, I mean, so many great points. And the one I would just highlight is like the, the transparency or the authenticity. And I connected with this one sponsor on LinkedIn and we, you know, hit it off. And he's like, Jesse, we have a webinar tonight, you know, just come on and see what it's like. And they're going through the deal. And at the end, you know, he brought up a scenario of a deal that went south in the past in his track record. And he said, but by the way, here's A, B, C, and D of how we're now mitigating that from ever happening again in our upcoming deals and in this deal. Even though he he was brutally honest, he's like, yeah, we lost this much money. It was completely unforeseen, but here's how we're mitigating that so it never happens again. I think that the people, like you said, the people who are all sunshine and rainbows, and then the people who are able to be authentically transparent um, yeah. is incredible. I mean, you said you hit the nail on the head. There's no way that every deal has gone perfectly right. You know, and I mean, what, I mean, do you have anything yeah. to add on that? I don't, I don't think there is. Oh a way. yeah. It's, it's, it's a headache. It really is. I mean, um, one property, you know, for, and this is kind of a, you know, as we were doing our due diligence, we were walking through every single unit and there's one unit that has the screen door, you know, has the screen door, the front door is wide open and there are four kids, probably all under the age of six, that are playing in the front room. And the house is a total mess. We're knocking on the door. We're ringing the doorbell. And there's no adults. You know, we're scratching our head thinking, what's going on? The neighbor comes over. The neighbor has a key to the door. The neighbor walks in. And anyway, long story short, um, no adult supervision on the kids. The kid's mother was upstairs sleeping, you know, and just... Anyway, fast forward two weeks after we close, those same kids being unsupervised threw a pillow in the oven. And it basically caught the place on fire. You know, fortunately, we had sprinklers there. But, you know, talking about bad things that can happen, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, we walked away thinking, oh, my gosh, I mean, kids are just like roaming around, you know, and there's. Um, you know, six month old jam stains on the ground. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's bad things happen all the time. You know, like I said, especially if, if you're dealing with C-class tenants, you're getting a lot of the C-class problems that come along with it. But uh, um, there, there is, there is some benefit to doing C-class. Um, we talked about more people choosing to rent. A lot of your C-class tenants are not choosing to rent. They're renting because that's the only housing they can afford, you know, which is a, it's a different class of tenant. Um, there's different types of stability. You know, they're not going anywhere. They're sticky. They're going to stay there. They're going to pay their rent because that's all they can afford. But at the same time, you know, C-class tenants come with C-class problems. Yeah, I completely agree. And and I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Some of these problems are just absolutely unforeseen. You can set all the right conditions in the world. And like you said, you guys did. I mean, the sprinklers, the fire codes were all, you know, up to yeah. date and, and everything, thank God, you know, worked out perfect, you know, worked out as well as it could have. So, um, I, you know, I'm really interested and I'm a huge fan, Brian, of the tribe of Titans and what you guys are doing there. Yeah. You know, as you guys have been educating and mentoring people, you know, what have you seen throughout your career as one of the biggest mistakes that new investors new syndicators make? You know, I think part of it is trying, is just, just having a little bit of hubris, you know, trying to do it on your own, you know, trying to, you know, and maybe this was one of the mistakes that we made was, you know, trying to you know, do things on our own and thinking, Hey, you know, we're four novices. We've never done this before, but how hard can it be? Um, I think that that's really probably the biggest mistake is how hard can it be? Um, you know, other than that, I think the second biggest mistake is just 
Um, there, there are some people that have the mentality of, you know, kind of like the, the field of dreams, you know, I'm, I'm in my forties. So yeah, I was, you know, uh, as a teenager when that movie came out, but if you build it, they will come mentality with raising capital, you know? So, um, you know, if you get a property under contract and it's a good deal, you're going to be able to raise capital. You know, the answer is no, that doesn't work. Um, so I, I think the other mistake people make is, is not focusing on, you know, raising capital early enough. You know, a lot of people will put themselves into a, I'm a deal finder, you know, I'm not a capital raiser. Um, they'll, they'll put themselves into that bin and not realize that, uh, you know, everybody has to be raising capital all the time. And so, um, yeah, I, to, to sum it up, I think the second thing would be, you know, not starting early enough at your capital raising um, and it can be as simple as just talking to people, you know, make sure everybody knows what you're doing, you know, put some posts on social media. Hey, you know, I'm looking for multifamily properties, you know, things like that. Just um, getting the word out to people. Um, and overall, I think those are the two biggest ones, you know, coming in overconfident and, and number two, you know, not focusing on capital raising up front. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think a huge part of that capital raising piece and, and Hunter Thompson talks it, Joe Furless talks it, and you've done an incredible job at it. And that's building a thought leadership program or yeah. platform. And, and your podcast is, is incredible. It's, a, it's an amazing podcast. You know, what, what are some of the keys? And like when I read Hunter's book and Joe's book, they talk about the importance of it, Brian, but they don't go into like the in-depth keys of building a thought leadership platform. I mean, how have you made the diary of an apartment investor so successful over this past year? You know, what are the major impacts that it's had and what are the keys to building a, a strong thought leadership platform? So the diary of an apartment investor was was it wasn't designed as a capital raising platform. Okay. Our avatar is aspiring investors. And, you know, for, for people who haven't heard the podcast, you know, we bring on aspiring investors with experienced investors and, you know, we, we let each, you know, each person tell their story a little bit, but the last 20 or so minutes of the podcast we're, I'm, I'm literally handing, well, not literally figuratively handing a microphone to the aspiring investor and say, Hey, you got two experienced people on the line with you. What, what do you want to ask us? You know, and it's it's just a you know real people asking real questions about um, investing in apartments. You know, and um, on, on the aspiring investor end, you know, I've I've had you know a 19 year old you know freshman in college on one end. Um, I've also had a guy that has you know a couple hundred units under his belt that called me up and asked, Hey, can you set me up with somebody who's really good at X? And I'm like, yeah, I can find that. So, you know, we, we've had a lot of different, you know, aspiring investors, you know, and on the experience side, you know, I've had a couple of people with billions, billions of dollars of assets in their portfolio as well. But, you know, really, it was just a matter of, you know, looking at my avatar, okay, my avatar, you know, the Tribe of Titans is an educational community. All right, I want to build or I wanted, we wanted to build this Tribe of Titans educational community. We had it on our drawing board when we created a Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. And it was designed to, the avatar for the podcast is exactly the avatar of a Tribe of Titans, you know, people who want to get into the multifamily game, who need help either through education or meeting the right people. And that's what we've tried to design with Tribe of Titans is an educational community where, where people can, can learn about the business, they can talk to other people in the business and potentially partner up with other people um, that are in the business. And incidentally, the property that I mentioned that we're closing on, hopefully tomorrow, you know, knock on wood, um, 
is is a tribe of titans product you know every everyone in the gp is a member of the tribe of titans and um it was it was kind of just somebody somebody came to us and said hey we've got this deal under contract we need help and it was just a matter of okay you know who's in my tribe right now that can do this and reached out interviewed several people and and brought the gp together so anyway that's that's kind of what it was is, is really knowing your avatar um, the other thing that I think that has contributed to its, its success is trying to get your guests to promote it. Um, you know, and that was, that was something I, I did a lot of research prior to on, on, you know, talking to other podcast hosts on what, um, they thought was uh, the best thing for, for adding new listeners and hands down, the answer was getting your guests to promote it. And so, I think for this first six to eight months of my podcast, I, I steered clear of the big people. You know, I, I didn't invite Michael Blanc. I didn't invite Rod Cleef, you know, or any of those other big people. They, they've been on my podcast since, but uh, um, I, I focused on the type of people who were, you know, newer in the business, you know, maybe weren't professional podcasters themselves, but that I, I, I figured would share it with their network, you know? So um, and I think that was a big part of it as well is trying to get the guests to, to share with their networks as well. Yeah, I think that's powerful. And, and you hit the nail on the head with narrowing the avatar. I think if, you, if you're trying to talk to everybody, you're talking to nobody. And if yeah. you can't narrow it down to a sub niche, like you said, new investors or whatever. And then I love the concept of, of bringing on the newer people. I mean, I'm, I'm curious what you think. It's like when I bring on guests that are extremely relatable, like let's say I had Grant, you know, someone who's maybe not so relatable, Grant Cardone, who yeah. just took down whatever, $700 million or something insane. It's like, you know, the John Smith and Jane Doe listening, like they can't exactly relate to that. But I'm sure there are military veterans that are like, wait, Brian Briscoe's doing what? Oh, I'm in a similar situation. I yeah. could easily pivot into apartment and building investing. So I think that relatability, I don't know if you have anything to add. I think that's super key. You know, and, and it is. And the the issue with, I'm going, going back to the aspiring investors. I mean, they, what I tell them when, when they ask me, what types of questions should I ask? I say, ask the questions that you have. I mean, don't overthink it. You know, think about what you need right now and what your biggest hurdle is and ask the question that can help you get through that hurdle, that roadblock, or that problem you have. And when, when the guests are open and honest like that, um, they are very relatable because somebody listening is going to listen to the episode and say, I've got the exact same question, you know, and it doesn't matter what question you have. I and mean, we, we've, I released episode 220 this morning. doesn't matter what question you have there's an episode where somebody addresses it, you know, and if you're an aspiring investor and you, I mean, you want to come on a podcast, Hey, guess what? I'm looking for aspiring investors. You have a burning question. You want to ask somebody, you know, um, as you know, Jesse, one of, one of the constant things you're always doing running a podcast is looking for guests. So, um, you know, anybody who's an aspiring investor, you know, reach out to me and just say, Hey, I'm an aspiring investor. I want to be on your podcast. All right. And we'll try to line you up with somebody who's going to be able to help you get through your roadblocks. So um, anyway, that's uh, that's how that works. Yeah, I appreciate it. And like I said, I'm a huge fan and that's why I just want to maybe more of a little selfish question to ask that, but yeah. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you, Brian, before we get ready to wrap up, I, I think you also do a tremendously incredible job. And I don't, I don't know if you mean to do it or if it's just a reciprocal effect, but you put out amazing content on LinkedIn on a 
pretty much daily basis. Um, how has kind of, you know, your LinkedIn network grown over the last few years? I mean, I'm a huge Yona Weiss fan. I'm in the check. This is my third challenge. I know you've always done it. He yeah. crushes the game. I mean, how powerful is LinkedIn to your networking and kind of, does it help you raise capital as well? I mean, again, you yeah. put out content every day that just crushes it. You know, I, I would be an unknown quantity if it wasn't for LinkedIn. I, I remember, um, you know, I, I was involved in Yona's second challenge. I don't know how many challenges he's done, but I was involved in his second challenge. Um, when that challenge came out, I had about 250 people in my LinkedIn connections. You know, I wasn't on LinkedIn very often. I had just started kind of, you know, going into LinkedIn and started, um, you know, my social media campaign, but I wasn't really, um, I wasn't consistent, you know, and I was just kind of I was more of a lurker and a consumer than I was a producer, but um, I started realizing the value. I started realizing that, you know, people started reaching out to me because of what I was putting in on LinkedIn. And at the time I was in a lot of Facebook groups as well, but uh, um, between LinkedIn and Facebook, I found that LinkedIn, you know, you were able to connect, you know, business to business with people a lot more. I think Facebook's more of a friend to friend type platform, although there, there, there are a lot of specialized groups, but basically, you know, I just through trial and error learned. And I mean, Yona's challenge, you know, he, his challenge is you got to get 18 likes and 18 comments on every post and going through that challenge. You know, a lot of people are just like, Hey, like my post, like my post, like my post. And they're trying to get the result, which is the wrong thing to do. All right. The right thing to do is to look at your posts and figure out what gets likes and what gets comments, you know, and find that happy medium. You know, you tell a good news story and you're going to get a lot of people who hit likes, you know, um, on, on the flip side there, there's some, you know, some questions that get a lot of comments, but not a lot of likes, you know? So it, it's, it's one of those things where you just kind of have to find that happy medium and, you know, figure out what works. And the LinkedIn algorithms, the more likes and the more comments you get, especially within that first hour or so, the more people that are going to see it and the more people that are going to see your name and, and see what you write. But as far as producing the content, you know, a lot of it comes from conversations with people. You know, when I have a conversation with somebody, um, you know, regarding, you know, hey, this is why I want to invest or why, you know, um, sometimes it's when I'm on a podcast and, and people ask questions or I get a really solid answer from a, from one of the experienced investors, you know, I'll turn a lot of that into content, you know, and just, you know, hey, this, this is something I've been thinking about. Um, when I'm reading books, I, I read a lot of, you know, like the self-help type books, the motivational books. A lot of times the content comes from that, but um, I'll say a lot of it in my, my best posts as far as, you know, likes and comments have been the ones that, you know, I read something, I'm thinking about it. And, you know, I just try to distill it down into something that's, um, that's easily consumable on LinkedIn, you know, something that's easy to like and easy to comment on. Yeah, the challenges have been transforming for me as well. And it's just like, I think there are people out there. And I think you, I, I've been on your LinkedIn page all for the last 24 hours just to prep for this. But I think you have 5,600 uh, followers and you started with 250. And I think there are people out there that have, you know, 10,000 followers, but they get like two likes on posts. And it, and it shows that the audience 
just isn't engaged to the content or they're just going down the line and hitting connect, 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 where you're actually putting out great content that's resonating with people, that's driving great conversation. And those people are liking and sharing it, which is forcing more people to, uh, you know, connect with you and follow your content, yeah. um, which I think is awesome. And incidentally, I have, you know, another 235, you know, who've are, who've sent me requests in the last couple of weeks that I haven't gotten to yet. And um, I do try to send everybody a personal note, which, you know, with 235 in the queue tends to be difficult, but uh, um, I, I try to, I try to connect with, with people on LinkedIn, you know, and so, um, you know, sometimes I make good connections. Sometimes, you know, I write a personal note that never gets responded to, but uh, um, you know, I, I think that the biggest thing with, any social media platform is, is it's not about the likes and the comments. All right. The likes and the comments are a means to the end. All right. So we're looking to build a real estate business with, you know, thousands of assets, uh, which takes millions of dollars of investor capital. Okay. So that's one metric that we track, you know, how much money's coming from this. We're also building an educational community. And, you know, the best way to track that is, you know, how many people are closing deals inside that one. So, you know, really the, the likes and the comments, you just got to realize those are means to an end. Um, and you have to have your end clearly defined, you know, and, and, and like I said, in our, our case, it's dollars invested and deals closed. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, and again, it's, you know, watching you as you've transformed over the last year and the content is like, I'm totally picking Brian's brain today on, on his aspects. Cause I think it is an awesome platform where I agree with you, you know, Facebook's maybe or Instagram's like more friends, you know, posting crazy videos. Like I believe like the sophisticated investor more lives on LinkedIn. He's mm-hmm. motivated and, you know, excited and f- finds your content more intriguing. So I, yeah. I appreciate that. Um, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on two last things, Brian. We These are the final two questions of the show. We ask them to everybody uh, before we wrap up. So I'm, I'm curious, Brian, if you could solve any problem in the world, what would it be and why? Poverty. Um I've seen it, you know, I haven't, I haven't lived it. Uh, I thought I, I thought I grew up poor, you know, because, you know, my, my, my dad had a blue collar job and I lived in a kind of a, you know, white collar neighborhood. Um, but, you know, when I was, you know, 19 or so, I went to, uh, spent two years in South America on a mission for my church and, and I saw real poverty, you know, and it's some of my deployments as well. You know, I remember spending some time in Djibouti um, and watching people dig through our dumpsters, you know, looking for, you know, anything that, you know, scraps of food or whatever, but it, it's just something that, you know, when, when I see people who are lacking, it just, just tears at me. So yeah, if I had a magic wand, I can cure one thing. It'd be poverty. Absolutely. I mean, I, again, deploying in 2020, when we went to the middle East, I don't think people who have lived their entire lives inside the continental United States <laughs> have a full respect for how little some people have out there. Yeah. Um, it's, it's people who live here and haven't left don't know how good they have it. Yeah. You know, and like I said, I thought I grew up poor because, you know, my parents couldn't afford to buy us a Nintendo. You know, my parents couldn't afford cable, but, you know, I had, I was never hungry. You know, I was never cold. I, I never, you know, wondered, you know, what was going to happen to me, you know, the next day. But uh, um, yeah, I didn't realize how good I had it until I left the country and, um, you know, between, you know, church service and military service, you know, I've been to 40 countries and I still come back here thinking how fortunate we are. So, 
Yeah, that's incredible. I, I appreciate that. And very last question, Brian, I know you just recently retired. You and your family, you know, bought a beautiful home. Mm-hmm. Brian Briscoe's living the perfect life. What does it look like? You know, I, I think it's just spending time with the people and in the causes that you, you, that are important to you, you know, um, you know, money is just, you know, when, when I first watched Forrest Gump, you know, I was astounded at his thought, you know, money is just another thing, you know, um, just one less thing to worry about. But, you know, that that's kind of my, my concept right now is, you know, you need money to do things, you know, and, and have stuff, but it's just, just one other thing that what, what's really important is, is the people, you know, being, being an, a positive influence in other people's lives. Yeah, I love that. And, and we say it on here all the time, but, you know, wealth is so much more uh, than some numbers in a bank account somewhere. It's, you know, it allows us the freedom to spend time, like you said, with the people we love. But yeah. Brian, I, again, I cannot thank you enough. Today was a privilege. It was a pleasure. People, I mean, who love the show, who, who want to learn more about you, Brian, we've talked so much about all your platforms already. People who want to follow up after the show, though, what's the best way to get a hold of you and, and what's the best way to uh, follow up? Well, um, I, I would say reach out to me on LinkedIn, but with 235, you know, requests sitting in the bank, I'd say that's probably, you know, not the best way. If you want to listen to what I say, go to LinkedIn, but, uh, or look at the podcast, but, uh, my email address is Brian Briscoe at fouroakscapital.com. Um, the tribe of Titans is probably the best place to, to actually get my time, you know, with, with a lot of things going on, you know, time is obviously precious, but, you know, if you, if you want my time consistently, you know, email me, tell me you're interested in the tribe of Titans and, you know, we'll get you in. Brian, I can't thank you enough again. You know, again, we're a couple of days here before Christmas. I know you're a huge family man. So I appreciate you taking 45 minutes to, uh, to record this today. It means the world. Absolutely. And, and when, when you offered, I'm like, yep, absolutely for Jesse, anything. So. <laughs> thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. Thanks. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Wealth Science Podcast. Take some time to subscribe and leave us a review. It really is the basis that helps us continue to bring on amazing guests each week. We have another incredible story to share next week, and I'm certain it's going to add value to this community. Please do not hesitate to reach out if there's anything I can do to help you in your journey of attaining financial freedom. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.